time to the book of Matthew. We have been, yeah, somebody's like, oh, it's about time. Yeah, we've been about two and a half years in the Gospel of Matthew, working our way slowly through, verse by verse. We've been trying to immerse ourselves in the the telling of Matthew of the Gospel of Jesus, the specific way that Matthew tells the story. And that's important for us because today, if you are new to church, you're new to faith, if you had friends and neighbors who don't know anything about faith in Jesus, this is probably one of the very few stories that you all know, right? If you were going to talk to somebody on the street who has no church background, and you say, what do you know about Christianity? They would say, Jesus was born on Christmas, Jesus died on a cross, and Christians believe that he rose again on Easter Sunday morning. That may be it. That may be all that you have. But that means that it's almost a certainty that all of you who are here already know the story we're going to talk about today, which puts us all in a very dangerous position. Because when we think we know, we're kind of like, yeah, 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 I got it. I got it. I've heard that before. Even if we only know the tip of the iceberg, we feel like, yeah, I got it. I got it. But here's the thing. As is always the case, our lives betray us. This is what I mean. We may know that Jesus rose from the dead, but we don't live like we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't live into the hope of the resurrection. And Matthew is not trying to communicate facts to us. He's not trying to get you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's trying to impact the way that we live. And so we're going to immerse ourselves in that narrative. Uh, One of my very favorite Easter quotes is by a guy named N.T. Wright. Um, He's a British theologian, and so I want you to listen to this quote with a British accent. I will spare you the accent this morning, but listen to it in your head. It's better that way. Wright says this, I regard it as absurd and unjustifiable that we should spend 40 days keeping Lent, pondering what it means, preaching about self-denial, being at least a little bit gloomy. I love the way he says it. And then bringing it all to a peak with Holy Week, which in turn climaxes in Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, and then after a rather odd Holy Saturday, we have a single day of celebration. Easter week itself ought to not be the time when all the clergy sigh with relief and go on holiday. It ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer, or even before, with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply a one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's long overdue that we took a hard look at how we keep Easter in church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. Right is right. We, we need to look at the way that we live because what Wright's saying is you believe the resurrection. Sure, you, you believe in Easter. But do you live like you believe in Easter? This image that's before you, I believe, is a, a driving metaphor for how we understand the resurrection. In fact, I'd like to make the case that it's how the earliest followers of Jesus understood the resurrection. So I want you to think about our context right now. A year ago, if you tuned in to an Easter service, you tuned in on your TV or on your computer. 
At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember talking to pastors who said, don't worry, by the time we get to Easter, at least we'll be together then. <laughs> and here we are a year later, and I only see half of your faces, right? <laughs> the journey through the COVID season has been a long one, a difficult one. Andy Crouch uh, wrote an article early in the pandemic towards the end of March of 2020. And he said, what, the problem that churches are having, the problem that all of us are having, is that we're approaching COVID like we approach a blizzard. We ran out to the store and we got our milk and our eggs and our toilet paper, of course. And, and we're huddling in and we're waiting for it to pass. But what if this pandemic is less like a blizzard and more like the beginning of winter? What if maybe even beyond winter, this is the beginning of the ice age? Is the church prepared? Fair question. And it does kind of feel like we're slowly emerging from a very long winter where everything's isolated and dead and colorless, and we're looking for life somewhere. Many of you know uh, my family and I transitioned to this house next door to the Fellowship Hall in late January, so my mother-in-law was able to come and live with us. And um, we, we made the move the weekend of that big snowstorm in January. I don't know if you remember, there was like a, a foot and a half that came the, be the beginning of January, the end of January. We knew we, we have to get in or we have to stay at the other place, but wherever we are, we're going to be for a while. So we better get there, right? And so we got here. And, um, and I've been working here for a long time, but I never paid a lot of attention to the, the landscaping around the area. But there's this weird thing because it's Pennsylvania, and so the snow is all over the ground, and it was like for six weeks we never saw the grass. We never really saw anything. Um, that, I was used to that in Ohio where I grew up. That was normal for me. But now that's weird. Like that doesn't happen around here. But mid-March, the snow starts to recede, and the landscaping starts to emerge, and there's a scene much like the one that you see on the screen in front of you right in our front yard. The daffodils pop up. You know, daffodils don't know anything about weather. <laughs> they're, uh, it's like d daffodils hit 40 degrees and they're like, woo, I'm here. Right? It's like, like they don't understand spring's not quite here yet. So they pop up. It's like the sign of spring coming in south central Pennsylvania as all the daffodils show up. And it never fails. The daffodils pop out and then it snows again. <laughs> Right? And that's what happened. They just had popped out, and we got another snow, and it looked, this is a professional photographer, but it looked like that. It, it looked like these poor yellow daffodils in the scene of, like, gray and cold and ice and no life. Those daffodils emerging, I believe, are the heart of what the early church understood the resurrection to be. That there was the promise of something different, and it might look like cold and lifeless and gloom and doom, but there was something happening. And so that's what I want us to try to immerse ourselves in, to listen to Matthew's account and try to understand what these early followers of Jesus were feeling and experiencing and what that means for us as we engage the Easter season. So would you pray with me as we engage the word this morning? Risen Christ, we come to your word 
and this truth, this remembrance, this celebration with awe and reverence, but also with great joy. We are so thankful for the fact that you have resurrected, that you have come back to life, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And you are now the place in which we hope. And so God, as we engage your word today, would you teach us and speak to us? Would you open our minds and our ears and our spirits to what it is that you're saying to us? I pray that you would guard my words, that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten but the words that come from your spirit would remain and that there would be seeds deeply planted in fertile soil in our hearts. That you would allow those seeds to grow up and to bear the fruit of hope in the world around us, in a world that so desperately needs that hope. And so Jesus, speak to us. Your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe that Matthew is trying to tell us that there are new things happening. I want to look at two of them this morning. A new kind of world and a new kind of life. There's a new kind of world, and because of that new kind of world, there's a new kind of life that we're invited into. And so that begs the question, what was the old world like? If we have a new kind of world, what kind of world do we live in? And I think Matthew starts that way. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says this, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. What kind of world do we live in? Well, we live in a world where these two sweet women who had devoted themselves to following Jesus for the last several years, who had given themselves to see Jesus' ministry expand, who had begun to deeply believe in the vision of humanity that Jesus had laid out, They've just taken a 24-hour period to quietly remember the power and promises of God, and now we live in the kind of world where they're going to the tomb, where the representative of the kingdom of God is laying dead. We live in the kind of world where violence and sickness and death prevail. Try, Try to put yourself in the hole of what Matthew has tried to explain to us. Jesus came and began to paint this vision. He painted a vision of a world that's grounded in love and in grace, a, the, a world that looks very different than the world around us. And, and he, he called this world the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And he taught about it. He explained what that world was like. And then he lived it. He began to live that out in front of his disciples. And then he invited them into living it as well. And he empowered them to live it. They became this this countercultural community who was living as though God was working here on earth as he was in heaven. They began to work in love and mercy and grace with one another. And he taught them through these little stories what the kingdom was like. And they began to understand it. And then he showed them through healing and miracles the power of God at work in this kingdom. He even taught them what it looked like to be that kind of community, to interact with one another in forgiveness and love and grace and mercy, to love your enemies and to care for the world around you, to go the extra mile, to carry your cross. And it was at that last point that everything kind of collapsed around them. Jesus 
teaching all of this goes himself to the cross. And these two women watching the entire journey watch Jesus die. What kind of a world do we live in? We live in a world where every would-be revolutionary is crushed by the Roman Empire. What kind of a world do we live in? We live in a world where men don't simply kill other men, but they devise more cruel and torturous and inhumane ways to kill one another, and Jesus is the victim of it. We live in a world that's ruled by sin and brokenness and suffering and death, and that's the world these women find themselves in. They had just begun to believe that another kind of world was possible. Like this, this ray of sun coming through the clouds, they had just begun to think maybe, maybe it could work. And then it's all crushed, all taken away. What kind of a world do we live in? A world that feels like perpetual winter. Ice and cold, no life, no color. I, I don't know if you have experienced this, but there are these times in late January, early February that you, you get up and you think, I am so cold, I will never be warm again. <laughs> I'm just like so cold. Like you can't, you, you can't imagine the idea of like going outside in shorts and a t-shirt and sitting in the sun. Like you just can't imagine it. Like the idea of walking on the beach is like a foreign concept. It's like that, that may be in another world, but in this world, I'm just going to be cold forever. It's winter. And that was what these women felt. We started to believe, but then he was crushed, just like everybody else. This is the kind of world that we're in. And so these two women go to the tomb. Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he was laid. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. In the midst of of this perpetual winter, could it be a daffodil coming up? Right? These women are like, maybe. Maybe there's hope. Maybe this world that he talked about, could it be if Jesus is alive? Remember, this is all circumstantial evidence at this point. They haven't seen him. They hear the angel. They see the tomb. They see the evidence, but they don't see him. If Jesus is actually alive, everything would be different. Could it be? Could it be? Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Matthew is not telling us that they have two distinct emotions, fear and joy. He's telling us that they have a singular emotion, fear and great joy. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but they're at this moment where it's like, if this is true, it would be incredible and it would be terrifying, 
It would be amazing, and we're not sure what it means for the rest of the world because everything is about to change. 20 years ago, a little bit more than that, Amanda and I left the York Hospital with a small human who had suddenly come into our lives. Yeah, there she is. Um, it, it, it was this revolutionary experience. I mean, uh, two of us went in, one of us to do real work, one of us along for the ride, you know, whatever. Um, and, and we come out a couple days later, and we have this little human with us, and I remember being so excited and so, so happy, so joyful, so like full of love. Oh, this is wonderful, and I'm strapping Tia into the little car seat, and I'm very carefully putting the seatbelt, much more carefully than I did the rest of her life that one time, like really, really careful, right? And I remember thinking in my head, it took me 16 years to get a driver's license, and in two days, they're sending me home with this little thing. Like, shouldn't I get, like, a test? Like, shouldn't somebody give me a class? Or I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, what do you mean? And, and so there's this joy, and there's this fear, and I remember thinking, like, this is wonderful. This little human is coming home with us, and everything is about to change. I have to think about diapers and groceries and college. Like, oh my goodness, everything's different, right? There's this this great joy and deep terror all at once. That's what those women felt. Like, oh my goodness, if, if he really is alive, everything's different. Oh my goodness, and the entire world is about to change. What's going to happen? And behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. I hate that translation. Um, he uses a very uh, simple, common Greek word that literally would be, behold, Jesus met them and said, hi there. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, they're walking away from the tomb and Jesus, like, shows up. Hi there, guys. How you doing? Good morning? Everything going okay? <laughs> like, just a very common greeting and they had to be like, what? Right? Like, this unbelievable event is unfolding in front of them. And Matthew gives us this very simple sentence. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. What an incredible fusion of the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus all at once. They grab hold of his very human feet and worship him. And then Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and go to Galilee where they will see me. There's so much in there, uh, an invitation, grace, forgiveness. Uh, tell my brothers to come and meet me. As they see him, it's the daffodil in the snow. It's a whole new world that's emerged. This is not just about the fundamental truth of Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead. This is about living in the kind of world where God raised Jesus from the dead. There's a whole new world that's unfolding because now it's not just a matter that Jesus is alive. It's a matter that now we live in a world where God is actively making Jesus alive, which has implications for everything that we do. This is not just believing in Easter. Lots of us believe in Easter. Lots of us believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is about living a life that's marked by the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. What's it look like to live Easter lives? Not just believe Easter things, but live Easter lives. Well, there's a ton of ways to answer that question. 
And so rather than trying to answer it, what I'd like to do is tell you a story, show you a story. It's a story of three women who represent other men and women who are part of this story, who are together, imperfectly like all of us, seeking to live lives in a world where God raised Jesus from the dead. Watch the story. Hello, I'm here today with two women from my community group, and we're here to tell you an amazing story of something that God did for us as a group. We've been meeting together for a while, and in recent years, uh, two of the times that we meet a month, we meet separately, men and women. We call them gender groups, and the women's group has um, really been a support to each other. We and enjoy sharing our hearts with each other, being transparent, and, and just remembering prayer needs of one another. We do this when we're together, but we also have a group text that we do. So it just has been a joy to support each other in this way. So about five years ago, my niece Erin gave birth to a little girl named Lana. Lana had Down syndrome. Then about two and a half years ago, Lana was diagnosed with acute lymphocytic leukemia. This started a very long and arduous journey of short um, or long stays in the hospital, chemotherapy, uh, a lot of complications. Um, it was so rewarding to have the community group that shared these burdens and covered them with prayer. After praying for Lana, um, well, it was about a year. She and her family came to York Alliance to visit us. And it was such a joy to finally meet this little girl that we had been praying for. It was like meeting a rock star. We all gathered around her and it was, it was just, I can't tell you, it was just such a happy time to meet this little, sweet little girl. So on January the 17th, this year, after two and a half years of chemotherapy, Lana was able to ring the celebratory bell at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital to celebrate the end of her chemotherapy. In addition, she's celebrating being in remission from leukemia. But this is not the end of her journey. Um, she has another mountain to climb. She has a, a misshapen eye that required eye surgery, and if they didn't do it in a pretty urgent manner, she was going to lose her sight. And so I felt at that point, the Lord putting on my heart to pray for healing so that she would not have to have this surgery. As a community group, we have been praying for Lana for healing. And as a gender group, we had also been praying for Lana's, uh, Lana's healing. And just a little over a week ago, actually on the day of her surgery, Margaret and I were here in my home praying and praying specifically for Lana's healing. And I remember looking at my watch. Charlotte had told us that her surgery would be at 11.45. And it was exactly 11.45. And I said to Margaret, oh, she ought to be going to surgery or she's in surgery. And so we prayed specifically that God would heal her and that she would not have to have the surgery. And guess what happened? Praise the Lord, he healed her so her surgery was not necessary. 
God is the God of miracles. He does want to do them. He did it. God healed Lana. It was amazing. And so I want to encourage all of you individually and as community groups, believe God for great and mighty things. He wants to do exceedingly abundantly above anything, anything that we can even ask. And the answer might not come in the timing that we have, but his timing is perfect. And the journey as we pray together is worth it. I want to be really clear. God doesn't always do that. But we live in the kind of world where God does that. And living based on the resurrection, living Easter lives, means that we hope in God to do what only makes sense if God's able to do it. We don't pray prayers that just go up to the ceiling. We pray in hope and trust because the God of the universe raised Jesus from the dead. And so therefore, the God of the universe can step in and do miraculous works. That's what it looks like to live as Easter people. To not just believe in Easter, but to live as Easter people. For so many of us, we live pre-resurrection lives. Here's what I mean. I don't know if you remember the story of John chapter 11. Uh, Lazarus had just died, and Jesus goes to Bethany, and he interacts with Mary and Martha, Lazarus's two sisters. And, and he comes to Martha, and he says, your brother will rise again. And you remember what Martha said? I know, Jesus. I know. We'll, we'll all rise again. There's going to come a point in eternity at the resurrection from the dead when we'll all rise again. What's Martha saying? She's saying this, Jesus, this is the kind of world where death rules. This is the kind of world where there are no other answers. And yes, there is another world coming. And we have hope in some future eternity. But for right now, this is what we have. What we have is a dead brother. What we have is mourning. What we have is grief. This is the way the world works. This is the kind of world we live in. And what did Jesus say? Martha, I am the resurrection. Martha, I am the life. Jesus was saying, no, Martha, there's a new world. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this kingdom of earth. This old kind of world, you're, you're going to begin to see bursts of the kingdom of heaven coming into it daffodils coming through the snow. There's a new kind of world out there, and we're not bound by this old kind of world. And if there's a new kind of world, there's a new kind of life, a new way to live. Listen to verse 11. While they were going, so at the same time that the women are leaving the tomb and they're encountering Jesus, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
And so they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So Matthew includes this detail because he's writing to a Jewish audience who had likely heard the story, and he was telling them where this story came from. But there's a deeper level here. Why do the Jewish leaders intercept the guards? Why do they have this conversation? Because people would believe that Jesus rose from the dead? So that people 2,000 years later would celebrate on a Sunday morning and then go about their normal lives? No. They're not concerned that you would believe the resurrection. They were concerned that people would find out that Jesus rose from the dead and actually live differently because of it. They were afraid a movement would start. And that's what happened. It started because people weren't simply living, they weren't simply believing in Easter. They were living lives that didn't make any sense apart from Easter. We're called to be people who live in such a way that the other people outside of the faith will look at us and say, that doesn't make any sense. Why do they have hope in the midst of that? Why do they have joy in the midst of that? And the answer is because we live in a new kind of world. We live in a way, a place where Jesus is breaking through, where the daffodils are coming up in the middle of the snow. We live in a way that can only be explained by the resurrection. Matthew then takes us to Galilee, where the disciples are meeting Jesus. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That should encourage you, by the way. Like, here are these guys who had journeyed with him, who had heard him talk about the kingdom, who had seen him die, and now they see him right in front of them. And some of them are right there. And some of them are like, you're going to have to give me a minute. <laughs> like, l- let me think about this. And it, that's true for us. We are those people. Like, some of you from a very young age have just believed Jesus rose from the dead. And you're in. And you're there. And some of you, like me, I'm a natural skeptic. And so every year we get to Easter and I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Let me think through this. Like, let me, let me process this. Really? Really? Like, for some of us, there is a faith battle. And for some of us, there's a faith gift. And Jesus says to both, to those who deeply believe and those who doubt, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Up until this point, Jesus had come incarnationally, meaning he had taken on flesh and he had come to a specific place with a specific message for a specific people. That's the story of the incarnation. And he had sent out his disciples incarnationally. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, he sends them out in pairs into the surrounding towns and villages, specifically to the lost sheep of Israel. He sent them to be incarnate to a specific people with a specific message at a specific time. But now, Jesus isn't just sending them incarnationally. He's also sending them resurrectionally. I don't know if that's a word, honestly, but we're making it up. He's sending them out resurrectionally. He's saying, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like, that's all of it, right? There's none left. It's all his. So go out to all nations. There, There are no people anywhere that don't belong to that category of all nations, right? And then he's about to say, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's all time everywhere. 
He, he said, uh, this, this message isn't just an incarnational message to be sent out to a specific people who qualify in a specific way at a specific time. This is a message for all people everywhere at all times. The world has changed and people need to know about it. And it's fascinating because the message changes from here on out. If you go back to Matthew chapter 10, the disciples go into these villages and, and their message is basically this. The Christ of God, the Messiah, has come. He's a brilliant teacher, and he's teaching us a new way of life. He's a healer, healing people. He's a miracle worker. We're seeing the power of God at work. And that's a good message, a right message, a a still current message. But by the book of Acts, that's not the message. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, onward through the book of Acts, the, the disciples, the, the apostles are telling a different story. Uh, it's, it's not a less than, it's a more than story. So Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. And their message is not Jesus taught really amazing things and he healed people and he had miracle working power. Their message is really simple. Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. That's it. At the center of faith is not that Jesus had brilliant teachings. He did, but that's not the point. It's not that Jesus heals people. He did and does, as we just saw. It's not that the power of God is at work in the world. It is and it will be. The message is that each of those things are pointing to the greater reality, which is that we live in a world where God raised Jesus from the dead. We live in a new kind of world, and we're called to live new kinds of lives in that world. We live in a world where the daffodils are coming up through the snow. And it might look dead and cold and lifeless, but there's new life right around the corner. And we live in the context of that new life. And then Jesus makes this final statement, powerful Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus doesn't just say that there's a new kind of world, and he doesn't just say that you and I are invited into a new kind of life within that world. He says, and I'm going with you into that world. There's nowhere that you can go that I'm not going to be. I'm guiding you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm walking with you in the midst of that world. Michael Card, who maybe you know as a recording artist, is also an excellent theologian in his own right. He, he says this, in the end, Jesus defines himself as the one who is with us. That is his identity. And it gives birth to a new identity in us. We are now the ones who are not alone, who will never, can never be alone. In a world that seeks to isolate and discourage us, they are the perfect words. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. There are some of us who feel the cold, the gray, and the lifeless, but the truth is that there are daffodils coming up in the snow. The truth is that we live in the kind of world where God raised Jesus from the dead. The kind of world where God is still actively involved. The message around us is this is the kind of world where sin and death and hell rule. 
But Jesus rose again, conquering sin and death and hell. And now we live in a new kind of world. And so as we worship, as we respond, I want to invite you to not just believe in Easter. It's good that you believe in Easter. I'm glad you're here. But we need to be those who live in light of Easter, who live with the kind of hope that says there is a a better reality that's right around the corner. It's coming. It may look like winter, but spring is right around the corner. And God is at work in the world. He is on the move, and we need to step into that move. And so I'm going to invite you to worship. The worship team is going to come and, and I want to invite you, uh, there are certainly some of you here as uh, pastors, elders, intercessors who would be willing to pray with others. If you're in that position, I'm going to ask you in just a minute to move towards the front over here and front, front on either side. And, and if you're here and you're just saying, I, I want to step into that, like maybe I followed Jesus, maybe I thought I was following Jesus, I'm not sure, but that kind of life, I want that life. We would love to pray with you and invite Jesus into that. And I think Ashley said this in the first gathering, and and I think she's right. There there may be some of you here who are longing for healing. And I think it would be very appropriate at this time to pray into that, to begin a process of asking the God of the universe who does that kind of thing, who raised Jesus from the dead, to step into our lives. And so if that's where you are, I want to invite you to come as well, and we would love to be able to pray over you. But for all of us, I want us to not simply declare that Jesus rose from the dead. I want us to be people who live that way. Jesus, thank you for the life that you've given to us. Thank you for the daffodils popping through the snow in the midst of the brokenness of our world, in the midst of the difficulty of our world. We recognize the invitation to new life. And so, Jesus, would you help us to live in faith as those who know that this is the kind of world that God raised Jesus from the dead, and we're invited into it. And so meet us and allow us the grace of worshiping with passion and joy and allowing that to carry over into the world around us. In your name.